And that jarring cacophony tells you that once again, you're back with the Scottish Talk Who podcast that likes to bring you lots of fun and frolics and hopefully some information and ideas for even Christmas presents, perhaps from your loved ones or for yourself, if you've been a good little boy or girl. So I'm Kenny Smith and I'm joined by my pal, the man who's looking for something at the moment. It's the one, the only, the legendary, just brilliant. Peace out, man. <laughs> Dave Steele. Well, hello, everyone. Dave Steele here. Yes, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Yes, we're um, over the you know the, the episodes are now we're basically um with the equivalent of the old chat show circuit on TV in the eighties and nineties when people would turn up when they had something to plug, something to bung. So you know, lots of people have very good books out at the moment, and they're coming to us to talk to them to encourage you to go and buy them. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Most definitely not. And it's rather nice when people say yes, when they want to have a chat as well. As we say, ideas for Christmas presents available from all good websites and probably some <laughs> bad ones as well. We're not going to mention and, Jeff Bezos. And don't forget, um, don't forget, like, you know, bricks and mortar retail listeners, use, choose your local book emporium if you have one. That's what I do. Sneeze. I'm going to sneeze. It's going to happen. So okay. let's watch out for listeners. Okay. Right. Anyway. Listeners, set your soap. No, listeners should set their stopwatches now to find out how long will it take Dave to sneeze and see if you're correct. Trouble is, listeners, when you've got cavernous great nostrils like mine and it's a bit cold and a bit dry in the mornings and they, they start drying out, then this is what happens. I start sneezing. Ten sneezes in a row on Sunday, which is quite fun. But there oh. you go. So, Kenny, to bring us screaming back to the point, who are we talking to today? Well, today we're going to be chatting with Andrew Morgan, who of course is best known to Doctor Who fans for his work on Time and the Rani and Remembrance of the Daleks. And of course he did make a wee uncredited cameo as a tourist in Silver Nemesis. So he has a new book out called And Action, My Life in Television, which has been published by our pals over at Telos. Now Dave, you're the obvious person to talk to about this because you, like myself, do have a bit of a soft spot for Time and the Rani. Oh yeah, I'm absolutely uh, a, a child of the McCoy era, as it were. I, but you know, I've waxed lyrical many times in the past about how much I love Sylvester, and especially his, his first season, and um, and you know, all of it really, but especially his first season because it really reeled me back in after a period when I'd kind of drifted away from Doctor Who during the the pause between um, season twenty two and season twenty three. It's always very exciting when a new doctor's announced, and I remember, you know, my anticipation of time the running was huge, and, I, and it's a story I still love. I watched it very, very recently. Actually, I just stuck it on again, and it was just sort of reminded of, compared to some of the very staid and sort of still and stodgy sort of you know studio bound stuff that we'd had sort of in the mid eighties. Just what a, what a good story it is in regards to you know the energy and commitment from everyone involved and the structure of the script and the performances and and it's and you know. Especially 
the effort being made by by its director just to make it livelier and just really to try and obviously to try and impress and show that Doctor Who was was hopefully here to stay because at this point obviously things are a bit dodgy for the program and it's um it's it's just so effervescent is the word I would use for it. I would agree. I think that after Graham Harper, you know, there weren't many you know directors with that distinctive a style, but I would have to say that what Andrew does in Time in the Rani completely changes things for obviously Peter Moffat had his style, which was slightly more staid and traditional, perhaps more theatrical, you could say. Whereas Andrew really gets you into the heart of the action. It moves at some pace. I mean, the edits in Time in the Rani, there's some really, you know, quick cuts and just yeah. some of the shots that, I mean, the energy, like even with, um, particularly with the bubbles, the tip trap traps, as they were, they are just fantastic. I mean, look at the effects in those as well. They would, I mean, effectively, they are way ahead of their time. They are, you know, there's like 90 special effects, you know, from sci-fi shows that you would get then. They just look so good. And they've got just that feel of vibrancy and the likes to them. They just feel so alive. Yeah, I mean, there was obviously some really good effects work in season 23, but Tyler Time Lord was... was, was in my view, was kind of like, you know, kneecapped because of the, the format, you know, so people were sort of distracted a lot of the time from the good stuff that was going on. I mean, there's a lot of handheld camera work, there's a lot of point of view stuff in Time of the Rani, you know, you know, we don't see Urak for a long time, but we see what he sees. As you say, the, the work with the, the bubble traps is amazing because obviously, you know, we've seen the behind-the-scenes material where the, they were just basically filming nothing and setting off explosions and tracking down so that all the effects were buried in. You know, there's, there's, there's also, you know, a couple of little things that Doctor Who doesn't normally do, like the little costume change montage, similar to one that was done in Robot, obviously, with the, with the cuts. But, you know, Peter Moffat wouldn't have done something as, as stylized as that. You know, there's a danger that, that we could slag Peter Moffat off, but, you know, he deserves it, frankly. <laughs> um, you know, the real, the real thing, I think, that defines Andrew's episodes, and, and obviously the work of Andrew Cartmel, the two Andrews, is imagination. This is this, these are two men who have obviously sort of thought, right? You know, we want to make this the best that can possibly be. They're not going to settle for the the Eric Sayward style of you know rebels and and gap and baffle gab and you know and endless scenes of yapping and unrealistic dialogue and the, or the Peter, Peter Moffat style of starting a close up and pull back and just let everything play out. And they're very careful to make sure as well that all the actors involved get get plenty to do, as opposed to say something like. Picking a Peter Davison story at random, Planet Fire, when you've got people like Peter Wingard and Barbara Shelley pretty much being wasted. Time in the Rani, especially, is a real contrast to a lot of what's gone before in previous years. And there's a real sense that they're trying to sort of right the ship and fight back a little bit and just sort of accept, not really just accept the, the lowest common denominator. They're trying to make Doctor Who that is vibrant, exciting, and, and not complacent. And there's absolutely no surprise that Andrew was invited back. The following year to do remembrance and my goodness what a job he does in that oh my god it's just i mean it looks at times if that had been shot on you know on film that's when you can imagine having been remastered been upscaled and you know released you know in many ways like the five doctors has been over and over and over again when you've got all these elements I and mean, it's just the energy of it it just feels fantastic it looks fantastic the performances are amazing you could not have a bet. You cannot imagine anyone else playing those various roles. They're so good, and what it just does. I mean, visually on screen, you're getting 
you know, the maximum out of like things like the Hand of Omega, the special weapons Dalek, just everything about it, it just it just reeks of class. And I love it. I absolutely love it. I mean, it's, I, lo- I enjoy watching Time the Rani, but Remembrance, I think sometimes it's often overlooked, perhaps, because people think Caves of Angelani, best story of the 80s. Go and watch Remembrance of the Daleks again, and you'll remember that actually this has got a hell of a lot going on in it. Yeah, Remembrance of the Daleks proves, you know, proves what we're saying about Time the Rani even further. You know, it, there's no complacency at all. There's real thought into the script, the characters, everything that's happening. Compare it to something like, um, it's an obvious kicking mark, but you know, compare it to something like Mysterious Planet or Time Lash or, and it's, you'd think it was a different series, you'd think it'd been made like 15 years later or something. It's, I remember when it was on TV and, it, and I was 15 when it went out and I could not believe how good it was because I, I had lingering memories of the, of the tinsel sets from, from Time Lash and that sense through, through a lot of some of the, the kind of mid 80s Doctor Who that it was all getting a bit stale and this was, this was like a, to use a phrase I've, I think I've used already recently, it was like a bomb going off. It was um, the cliffhanger to part one, again, with clever point of view shots, you know, the Dalek point of view, which you know, you get in a couple of scenes, similar to what they did with Urak. You know, that cliffhanger of the Doctor being chased up the stairs with the Dalek, it was astonishing. All the scenes of the Daleks fighting each other were amazing, the Dalek in the junkyard, the commitment from, from all the actors involved. There wasn't a sense that anyone was hamming it up or camping it up or phoning it in, you know. And Sylvester's amazing, Sophie's amazing in only her second story. All the location stuff in the school seamlessly blends with the studio stuff. It works so, so well because the commitment from everyone is is fully there. Unlike, you know, again, any of the, the other eight stories, you know, from previously that we could have mentioned where it was all getting a bit samey. I would, I would agree with you that Remembrance is, is a is a better story than Time in the Rani. Absolutely. It probably, I mean, it's, it's, it's top 10 for me, full stop. I mean, I, I have a real affection for obviously for Delta and the Bannermen, but I'm I'm willing to concede that Remembrance is probably better, but the difference between favourite and better and best and good and all that is, is, is quite is quite um it's quite strong. I mean even up to the final scene when the Doctor and Ace decide, you know, slip away from Mike's funeral, you wouldn't have got something as you wouldn't even have got the funeral in an Eric Sayward story. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mike could have died probably with less pathos and less imagination Unless character work, um, probably been shot by a Dalek halfway through episode three or partway through episode four randomly, and Colin would have looked angsty, and that would have been it. Maturity is the word I think that's that really kicks in during season twenty-five. You can see the, you can see the process. The season twenty-four is very much kids' TV, energy and effervescence all over the place. But season twenty-five, I think right? No, we've got um, we've got two leads here who can handle the good stuff, and they steer them towards you know the difference again. With, with season twenty-six is palpable. The McCoy is amazing. I've no trap with anyone that, that that can't see why it's amazing, and obviously Andrew's work is a massive, massive influence on on what succeeds in that period. Completely agree. Now you just used the phrase like a bomb going off, which similarly there is, of course, that well-known anecdote that uh, about the shooting of Remembrance at Waterloo Bridge, and uh, Andrew is going to fill us in on that now and tell us a little bit about his career and how this whole book came about. Hello, I'm Andrew Morgan, and I'm now retired, but I have uh, had a career in theatre and television, uh, always in drama, and uh, I started off in 1967, and uh, I uh, 
that's that was in television I started off in 1967 I'd done theatre before that in fact I started off after school I went to I managed to get into the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and uh, had uh, ideas of becoming an actor until I met some of the other students who were pretty good I thought and uh, very good looking which I wasn't and I thought well I'm going to be 40 before I earn any money being a character actor so I decided to go backstage. I became a, a stage manager at uh, the Theatre Royal in York. And then I did a summer season at a theatre which has now been pulled down called the Opera House in Scarborough. And, uh, and then after that, I went back to York as a stage director and I managed to get a job at the BBC uh, as a holiday relief assistant floor manager, uh, which is basically a runner. And that's how it started. That's quite a fantastic summing up of several years in about a minute and a half. So I'm, I'm most impressed. Well, I, could go, I could go back if you want to do, do more. <laughs> I mean, I think that the thing that I've always found interesting is from for somebody who's used to trading the boards and then going behind the scenes. That I always find is a fascinating. But I suppose it's something that you've seen going on as you've been learning your craft on stage. Yes. Um, what's what was a real that's always been a real help uh, for me when I worked in television, both um, right the way through until I, until and also when I became a director. Is I because I'd had that experience at RADA and worked with actors and had been an actor, I kind of knew how they tick and I can get on with them very well and they kind of understand me and I understand them uh, because I'm much more interested in the performance type of stuff rather than the actual shots or the, the way the, uh, the technical side of, of directing. I, I understood that and liked it, but I was always able to get on well with, with all sorts of actors, difficult ones and easy ones. Mind you, I didn't I, I had my time with some of them. There was a very early stages when I was just a runner. I did a series which has been long forgotten called Champion House. It was all set in Yorkshire, but the rehearsals were in and the studio recording was in London. And there was an actor called Edward Chapman, who was the, uh, the, the leading man, the star of the show, as it were. Uh, but he, uh, he was quite old by now, and uh, he had trouble with his lines, learning his lines. And he also uh, had a bit of a drink problem, because he, every morning when he came into rehearsal, he uh, seemed to carry uh, something in his Mac pocket, and he put his, hung his Mac up in the gents loo in the rehearsal room. And I noticed that uh, as he sort of kept getting more and more belligerent and cross with everybody else. Every time he went into the gents, he came back smelling of, of alcohol. So I went one day, I'd had enough, and he was particularly rude to me. And I went in after him, and I found this half bottle of gin in his pocket, and I poured it down the drain and filled it up with water and put it back. And uh, so sure enough, about... Uh, 20 minutes later, he said, oh, sorry, excuse me, I must go to the gents. And uh, he went to the gents and came back. I was watching. His face was like thunder. And uh, he said nothing, because he couldn't really, until uh, we broke for lunch and we went to this sort of pub cafe place. Uh, but there was a bar there and he said to me, he came up to me and he said, Andrew, you owe me a very large gin and tonic. And I didn't say a word. I just went and bought him one 
and uh, that was that. We never had never had any trouble with him since. So I haven't always been, uh, but I do get on with uh, actors fine. Even uh, you know people like Richard Burton, who was uh, drunk most of the time. Uh, and then we had we had a great affinity, and it's been that being at RADA and, and learning how actors tick um, has helped me a great deal in my uh, in my life. I think. Oh, I was having a look over your CV and some of the programmes that you've worked on so you, when you became a director, because I think you did the BBC Internal Directors course in the mid-70s. I did. Yes, I did eventually, which was, um, which was wonderful. They don't do it now, but it was, it was, it was a tremendous thing. There were, two, there were two courses, one straight off the other. One was film and the other was kind of video. And in the video course, I learnt all sorts of things we, because the, uh, the trainee directors came from all over the BBC and all over the regions and there were uh, Scottish people, Irish people and, uh, and from everywhere else and all sorts of programmes. So there were people, there was one there from religious programmes, there was someone uh, from doing, wanting to go into programmes like Nationwide, which were the uh, sort of magazine programmes and uh, news programmes and everything. We were all bundled together and had to do uh, various scenes and uh, the first thing we had to do all of us was a very simple um, thing we had a, a a scenario where we all went into a park there was no sound just uh, a camera uh, and, uh, and a cameraman a trainee cameraman came and the scenario was that uh, in the park in a, on a path in the park there was a, a bowler hat had uh, someone who lost a bowler hat and it was sort of found on the horse. So the idea was that you picked up a brick or you got one of the other people on the cast in the, in the, in the, on the course to pick up a brick, put it inside the bowler hat, hide behind a tree and then wait. And sure enough, someone would come along and, and then they would kick the hat and hurt their foot. And everyone had the same thing to do. It was all the same thing, but we all had to shoot it ourselves in a different way, work out where to put the camera, etc., etc. And I thought, well, that's pretty simple. So we we did that. And then the next morning, the rushes came back, the the, the footage, and we were given a, a, a machine, and we were told, right now you've got to cut the film, cut it together as you wanted, and then show it at the end of the day to the rest of the class. And then, funnily enough, you know, you learned a huge amount just by how one count, one, one shot cuts to the next, etc., etc. That was on the film course. And at the end of the film course, um, we all had to do our own project. We were given a budget of uh, £50 and three hours with um, a crew from Ealing. There was a cameraman an assistant, a sound man, and one lighting man. Um, and we had to do uh, make, make up a show, and various people did documentaries or whatever. I was in drama, so I wanted to do a drama. And uh, I thought long and hard what to do, because there, obviously money was short, etc., etc. And uh, eventually I remembered that my father was a, a divorce lawyer, and uh, in those days, you had to you know, to get a divorce. It meant going to court. And we had this particular case where a lorry driver who drove a cement lorry, uh, you know, those things that go round and round uh, as they go along the road. And he he was early to, for delivering this cement. So he thought, and it was going past his home. So he thought, oh, I'll pop in and have a cup of tea. Well, he popped in and uh, found his wife in bed with another man. 
So he didn't know quite what to do, but he was absolutely furious. So he slammed out of the house. Outside the house, was a, there was a car park, a strange car. So he opened the bonnet, backed his cement lorry, in, and tipped his cement uh, down into the uh, into the car, into the engine part, department compartment of the car. Went up the road and waited, and sure enough, a uh, little man came out of the house five minutes later, sort of doing up his, fl- his trousers, and uh, he went straight past the car and got on a bicycle and cycled off. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, <laughs> someone came out of a shop across the road and couldn't start his car. Um, I thought, well, this is a good little film if I can get the money together. So um, I went to a, one of these uh, places where they, they fill up the cement lorries and uh, they, um, they, they said, they said they were very good. I persuaded them to let me have a lorry for a couple of hours at Twenty-five pounds. So that was twenty-five pounds. But I had to get a driver, and um, luckily I knew an extra um, who was. Uh, I done a lot of work with him uh, when I was a production manager, and uh, he was Richard Burton's double on a previous show I'd worked with. And I, he kind of owed me a favour, and he had a, a heavy goods vehicle license, so he agreed to do it for five pounds. And uh, then I had to find a location, so I found a location in Acton, and uh, so I had to find the the, the woman in be- the wife in bed. And I thought, well, my wife would do that, uh, but who could be? Um, who can I have to be in bed with her? And there was a a, a chap uh, I knew very well, Jeremy Swan, very nice man who, who was on the course uh, with me, and uh, so he agreed to be the man in, in bed. and went off on the bicycle, and uh, it was very successful. It, it all worked very well. In Indeed, I learned a lot from that because uh, when, when all the rushes came back and we looked at it, it was it was. It, well, I bought the car for six pounds. That's right, the six pounds <laughs> from a, uh, in um, a, a junk sort of place in um, in Guildford and towed it with my by my own car. I towed it to the location because uh, it wouldn't work. So yeah, it was very successful. But the, the editor uh, afterwards, when he started to edit it together with me, um, I was thrilled because it all worked quite well and looked rather nice, I thought. But one day I came in and he said, uh, I've done a bit of work on your film while you weren't here. I, I hope you don't mind. Have a look at it. So I said, OK. So I played it again and he played it through. He cut the whole thing by about a half. It was about six minutes long. It was now about three I said, well, what about all those beautiful shots I did with all the, you know, the sun was glistening as the cement came down the chute into the car and all of that. And he said, yes. He said, I know, I'm sorry, but do you think it's a better film now? And I looked at him again. I said, well, yes, I, I suppose it is. And I got rid of all those lovely shots and, and it was left with a, with a really good film. That taught me an awful lot, actually, that, you know, it, when you're directing, the shots... As long as it's a good drama and as long as they, you can tell the story well, if you're actually watching a, a piece of television and in the middle of a film, when you're watching it in the middle of it, you say to yourself, gosh, that's a good shot. It's actually a bad shot because you shouldn't be thinking that. You should be into the story. And um, it's fine for an opening shot of a film or a closing shot of a film. You know, they're great, but, but not actually in the middle of the story. It gets in the way of telling the story. That taught me quite a bit. Fantastic. <laughs> That's brilliant. I, I love the fact the real life story is even better. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was something that, I mean, I, I think the first of your work that I remember seeing for definite was Swallows and Amazons Forever. 
because my dad yeah. was such a fan of the books and he absolutely loved what you did. And uh, okay. he, I mean, he's he's not been with us for 20 odd years now, but that was a really good family viewing because we, we, we absolutely loved watching that together. And it was just so beautifully shot. Oh, thank you. Yes. I mean, I, I love doing that. I, I Joe Waters was the producer and I'd worked um, with him. We were filming in something in Cyprus. Oh, Squadron, that's right. It was a, there was a series called Squadrons about the RAF, uh, which got ruined because the Falklands War started and all, all the props, we had a, a Harrier jump jets and uh, helicopters and things, and, and they all had to go off to, to the war. So the, the series was rather ruined, although I, I did learn to um, to go up. We had a Hercules, um, and that was great because they taught me how to fly it. Not not properly, but uh, I was at the controls uh, and had to try and land it. And it was it was really quite exciting. That. But uh, on the way back from Cyprus, Joe Waters talked to me about Swallows and Amazons. And uh, I read the books and, and then I read the scripts. And I thought, God, oh, they're great. They're really good indeed. Um, so we went up to Norfolk and uh, found all the locations which were great. They had a very good designer and a very good cameraman. And uh, the, uh, the the leading man was quite... The leading... Well, Rosemary Leach was in it and John Woodfine and people... And Patrick Troughton. We, so we had a nice cast, but to try and find the, the leading boy, Henry uh, Dudgeon, Sam Dudgeon, I think he was, was um, quite difficult. But um, one of the assistants who had been in the original film Sophie, her name was, uh, of, um, of Swallows and Amps, and she played Titty in the original film. She discovered this boy who was at uh, the Dragon School in Oxford, and he just passed his exam to go to Eton. And he said, she, he, she's very, he's, uh, he's really good, you know, he's, uh, I think he'd be very good. And I met him, and he was, he was great. And his name was Henry Dimbleby, and he's the guy who now uh, is quite famous in the food uh, thing and his father was um, David Dimbleby, who was a famous broadcaster. So uh, we uh, we got him. He he loved the filming, and uh, when when we started off, he was quite thin, but he always enjoyed the teas and had lots of cream teas with the caterers. And at the end, he, he put on quite a bit of weight, so he, we always had to let his. They were wearing shorts, the, the the boys and things, and we had to let his trousers out because we did some some sequences obviously out of order. So some early sequences, he was much fatter than he was in the later. But he was a delight to work with. <laughs> well, it was a wonderful series, and it was a really good family viewing. And I've got I've got nothing but happy memories. So whenever I think of Swallows and Amazons, I always think yeah. of watching it with my dad. So thank you for. What you did in that? Oh, not at all. There was another uh, quite amusing thing that happened. There was a, an actor called Alan Lake who was married to Diana Dawes. Some people would remember. Alan was a bit of a tearaway, and uh, he played, only had a small part. But we were filming with him one day, and we couldn't find him anywhere. I and mean, he was, he was, you know, we were waiting for him to think. And eventually, we we had a uh, a boat which was the schoolroom for the children, and it was a big, quite a big launch which hid. Any, um, any, any other thing that was out of period, you know, in the background shots. And they eventually found him on this boat with all the kids and the teacher we had to teach them less lessons when they weren't filming. And he was teaching everybody how to roll a joint. Uh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, the, 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 the kids were fascinated and so was the teacher. None of that came out at the time. Thank goodness it would have been terrible if it had, but... Uh, 
that was another amusing story, I thought. <laughs> I love it. So you mentioned yeah. there working with Patrick Troughton and, of course, you got Colin Baker, on, I think, on Swallows and Amazons as well. Yes, he was, yes that's right. In fact, uh, there was a scene, uh, he played a solicitor, he played the father of, the, of uh, David Dibbleby's father. And uh, we were filming there one day and uh, he, it was sort of towards the end of the day and he, he came in and he was terribly excited and... Uh, and sort of bubbling over, and I said, "What's the matter? What's happening?" He said, "Well, I, I'm not supposed to tell you, but I, my agent's just phoned me, and I've got, and I'm going to be the new Doctor Who." And I said, "God, fantastic!" He said, "You mustn't tell us so. You mustn't tell us so." That um, that's how uh, we we start, uh, started. He was delighted to work with before uh, the Doctor Who, and then of course when I came to do Doctor Who a few years later, he wasn't any longer in it, and he'd been treated very badly by the BBC and uh, refused to come in for the regeneration which was really uh, he sort of refused but he couldn't anyway because he was he'd got a job in the theater i think and the, the dates just simply didn't work so when it came to sylvester we had to do the uh, the regeneration scene we had to do it without colin yeah it must have been quite daunting coming in here you go you've got a new doctor and it's obviously quite a technically demanding show but of course you've done blake seven by this point so you've got a good idea as to how it probably would have been. Well, actually, there was a big gap. Uh, I did Blake 7 right at the beginning. I did uh, Secret Army and Blake 7 together. The, uh, the film, in those days, we used to do all the filming bits, you know, all the chunks for each episode, and then come back and record the uh, the studio scenes. And I, because the episodes I would, was doing, both in Blake 7 and in Secret Army, were sort of numbers... 11 or 12 in the series of 13. There was a big big gap between the filming and the thing. So I did the filming for Secret Army. Then I did the filming for Secret, uh, for Blake 7. Then the studio for Secret Army. Then the studio for Blake 7. So there was quite a big gap. But yes, I mean, I, I didn't know anything much about the, the, you know, the technical aspects. Blake 7 was not that difficult, really. I mean, there were a few few things I learned but not much but there was a, as there was a long time before I got before I did the Doctor Who so I was quite wary of all the effects and locking off the cameras and things I didn't even know how how the um, the TARDIS appeared and disappeared until I, until uh, I was told and then of course it was very simple <laughs> but it was before before the digital age and uh, it was quite tricky especially there was a lot of spheres I think um there were those bubbles that you know, landed around the place in, in different quarries. I thought, how the hell do I film this? I have no idea. Spinning around and doing it. So I, I learned quite a lot about it, and uh, it was good. Bonnie Langford was great screaming and stuff. I saw her the other day in uh, in, the, in, the Sondheim, in uh, the Sondheim musical, which is on in the West End now. She's absolutely terrific. She's, she's a marvellous actress. Yeah, I think that a lot of people didn't appreciate what she was doing at the time, and now thankfully no. she's getting that acclaim, and, and she's getting to come back in the in the series. That's right, coming back in Doctor Who, which is yeah. wonderful. But I suppose yeah. the thing that always struck me about Time and the Rani is that it feels completely different to anything that's been done, you know, like in the previous three four years. It's it's fresh, it looks different, and it's so fast. I mean, the, the action sequences you do in there are just fantastic and they wouldn't be out of place in the 21st century show. And for me, it's yourself and Graham Harper are really the outstanding directors of the 80s and Doctor Who. And it's just the energy that it has is fantastic. 
Well, that's very kind of you to say so. I, I was a bit disappointed in my my work on on Time and the Rani, not not because of the show. And I, mean, I agree with you that I, we did manage to get a lot of energy into it. And Sylvester helped a lot with that because he's an energetic actor, of course. Um, but I was a bit wary of the special effects, and I kept being told. I had to lock off the camera, you know, then you can put on special effects afterwards. And, I, and as a result of that, I took advice from all the technical people and they told me what, what to do. And they, they were playing it safe and I was playing it safe and kept the cameras on. I felt, although there was a lot of energy in the show, that some of the shots were rather static. And uh, I wasn't totally happy with my, you know, the way I did it. Oh, it was, it was fine. There were a couple of things that were, I didn't like in the show. The Rani's TARDIS, I thought, was pretty awful. Just She just went behind it and d disappeared, or whatever it did. I, I thought that was a bit silly. And I, uh, there were a lot of problems, actually, with the script on that to start with, because uh, when John asked me to direct it, I, I said yes, because I'd turned down a, a previous uh, show, I, and I thought, well, it'd be silly to do this again, and I was available to do it. So. I came along and he said, well, it's lovely to see you, Andrew, but uh, we've got two problems. We've got no script and we've got no doctor. And I said, well, that's a bit tricky there. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so this script was written in a bit of a hurry by Pip and Jane Baker. Uh, and uh, it wasn't particularly good, I didn't think. We had a, a lovely new uh, script editor, Andrew, Andrew Cartmel, uh, and he didn't like it either. And... Uh, we had to change quite a bit and it wasn't a very happy working atmosphere with Pip and Jane at the time. Um, but we got through it in the end. There were a couple of bits in, in the show I didn't like. There was this these sort of killer bees sequence that I didn't think that worked at all. But by and large, the bits with Kate were fine, Kate O'Mara, and, uh, and the, the, as you say, the scenes in the quarry were, were I thought that all that spinning stuff, in the, the bubbles worked very well. And uh, I was, yeah, I was pretty happy with it. But I was delighted when John asked me a year later to come back and do Remembrance of the Daleks, when um, that show that was a lovely script and uh, by Ben Ar Aronovich, and uh, I was able to uh, tell the, the special effects people, the video people, look, I, I now know what to do and what not to do, and, and instead of you telling me. Uh, what's going to happen? I'm going to tell you, and you've got to make it work. You know more. I mean, obviously, I, I, uh, there were things that I had to do uh, to make them work, but it was it, it, that that worked a lot better. I didn't think that was so static. I thought it was really uh, a really good show. And I think that you know things like there's a fair legacy from this one, given that you know things like the extermination effect you had with the skeleton inside. That's something that's carried on into the show in the 21st century which sort of yeah. creating these these wonderful images and icon iconography. And it's, it's just such a great show. I think it feels really different. I feel that Sylvester's more confident and obviously Sophie's yeah. come in and she's hit the ground running and they're just such a good pairing together. Yes. And I thought Sylvester was less jokey. I mean, one of the things about, I remember about Sylvester when he first came, when he first came he was full of, it was full of comedy and not knockabout sort of comedy stuff and um he had um i, I remember after the filming sequence well they weren't filmed they were, they were on uh, outside broadcast but there was a sort of um 
bit of a party or a drink in the hotel on the last day, and the cast were there, and John Nathan Turner, the producer, was there. And uh, Sylvester picked up these spoons and started playing the, the spoons, and he's brilliant at it. And, of course, John saw this, said, oh, I've got to get that in the show. And sure enough, um, in the... Uh, I think it was in the TARDIS or in one of the sets. There happened to be a couple of, of, of spoons, and Sylvester started to get them and play them all over the uh, over the Rani and everything. <laughs> um, and, but it was all very jokey. And uh, and I think after the first season, Sylvester became much more th- the character became much more thoughtful and more, a bit more serious. I mean, there was still a lot of laughs in it and jokes in it, but he was. It, it became more real for me than I thought the whole second series was better than the first. Yeah, and of course you got to work with all these wonderful new Daleks and, as if right on cue, I have some of them here in model form. So, oh, so uh, you do, yeah. Fantastic. No, the, ones, yeah. The, the good ones and the, the bad ones and the worst ones. <laughs> That's a very <laughs> fair summary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it must uh, have been really you know, fantastic for you getting to work with you know these icons of British TV. Yes, it was it was funny because we, we, we they had to have a battle, you know, they they were fighting each other. We found this location which was um, by uh, Waterloo East railway station. Uh, and uh, but the trouble was the the streets were cobbled and uh, I was frightened that the Daleks wouldn't be able to work the little men in the not little men but the men inside the daleks wouldn't be able to get them over the um because they're only casters on the bottom of, of the daleks uh, they wouldn't be able to go over the cobbles but the special effects guy i said don't worry uh, i can fix that i'll put these big wheelbarrow wheels remember they used to be um wheel round wheels on yes big balls sort of things yeah those things, yeah. And he put those, he took the castles off and put those on. And I thought, oh, great. He said, it's an all-terrain Dalek. It'll be fantastic. And uh, the day came to, to do it. And of course, the, the men, when they got inside, there was no room for their feet because the, 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 wheels were, the wheels were too big. So they couldn't move at all. It was disaster. Oh, God, what did we do? So we had to take the wheels off put the casters back on and if you look carefully at the sequences you'll see that um in the the long shots with the daleks the daleks don't move but in the closer shots they do because we put boards down on top of the here uh, on top of the cobbles and of course they were able to move over the boards oh, and then there was this uh the fight between the two of them, and there had to be this huge, the special weapons Dalek, I think it was called, came in all and uh, had to had to fire this in, enormous gun at uh, the others and annihilate them all. And we he's we arranged for this to happen underneath the uh, there was a sort of tunnel, but and the the uh, Waterloo East railway station was above this, not a tunnel, but a sort of bridge, quite a big bridge under underneath, and. Uh, we thought, well, we'll have the explosion on there. I said, well, it will be all right. Won't it? He, and the special effects said, oh, yeah, don't worry, it'll look big, but it, it won't do any damage at all. Fine. So we let this gun go off, and there was this enormous explosion, great masses of uh, flame and uh, smoke. And this, it, what happened was there had been years of soot underneath the thing, and this all billowed up 
over into uh, the station, into the Waterloo East station. Well, of course, the fire alarms went off. I think there were 23 fire engines and 17 ambulances or something all turned up. And all they could find was some Daleks lying on the floor. Uh, it was uh, quite uh, funny in retrospect. I thought, oh, we're going to be in trouble. Uh, they had to close the station for a while. Then, they, then everyone stopped, so realized what was happening, and there was a, they all laughed. Thank goodness it was in the uh, evening standard paper yeah. about it. And I thought well, I'm going to be in trouble, but luckily everyone saw the funny side. And it was okay. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> of course, these are just were some of the, the stories from your amazing career. And it's having had a look through the book, it's wonderful. Could you maybe tell us about how that came about? Well, it was in lockdown after the thing. I just, uh, I hadn't kept anything, no scripts, no um, plans, no anything at all, really. But I, the only thing I did keep was a list of the actors I worked with and their addresses, their home addresses, because early on I used to have to, uh, part of my job was to call them at home and, uh, and tell them when their rehearsal time was, or et cetera, et cetera. I just kept these. They were just pages of, uh, I think they were in three files. Of, of a list of actors and their addresses. But of course, what it did was it reminded me of what shows I did in what order. And uh, I just thought in lockdown, well, what shall I do? And I thought, well, I'll write. I started to write down, first of all, a bit about myself and, and my childhood and that sort of thing, just for the grandchildren, really. And then I thought, well, I started then doing the television. I thought, well, it's quite interesting because I was very lucky because when I started, everything was still in black and white. Then colour came in and the various shows I did were, you know, well-received and quite loved at the time. Things like An Eden Line and Colditz and you know, Sherlock Holmes and things like that. So I thought, well, I, 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 I remembered bits and pieces that happened. I didn't remember the shows or the plots particularly, but I, I sort of remembered when something funny happened or who was doing what to who or whatever, you know, I thought, well, I'll just jog it down. And it started, and then I thought, well, all this bit about me at the beginning, that's really boring. I got rid of most of that. Cut that down to, you know, the first 20 pages or so, and my sort of how I got into television. And then I just went through in, in, in sort of the order of the shows I did, and then you you, know, you remember bits and pieces about what happened, you know, and what happened. So there are bits like in later on I did Juliet Bravo. Now I don't remember anything much about plots or anything, but I remember th incidents that happened. And there was a scene where in Juliet Bravo where this woman um, who was sort of a religious maniac had to walk across. We were in Bury in Lancashire, and uh, they had to she had to walk across the town square. When we got to the location. There were a few pigeons pecking around and doing that stuff. And I thought, oh, I know it'll be good. If she walks, if we get lots of pigeons and she walks across the square and the pigeons all fly off, then um, it'll look great. She sort of raise her hands and say, praise be to the Lord or something. And uh, it's just a you know, little, tiny little sequence. It was a, no, not really any sound or nothing much to it. And no, no dialogue as such. So I asked my assistants to go and get some bread and feed the pigeons and of course by the time we got the camera set up there were hundreds of pigeons around the place oh great so uh, I said okay we're ready uh, this actress Mona Hammond a wonderful actress 
now sadly no longer with us, but she she came, she did, I said, about action, and she walked across. And all the pigeons did was step to, to one side and let her go. They didn't fly <laughs> off at all. Oh, God, this is no good. So I said, we'll do another take. And I said to the crew, look, there's no dialogue, so make as much noise as you can. Uh, tap the tapper board, shout the scream, whistle, do whatever you want, and the pigeons will take fright and go. So action, it went across. Absolutely nothing. Exactly the same thing happened. The pigeons stepped to one side. I said, I think the, the shot looked okay, but it wasn't what I wanted. But I said, fine, we're running short of time. Let's go on. And as we were starting to pack up, the, gen the, the Jenny driver, the generator that does the electricity for, for the lighting, uh, came up to a very old guy uh, and uh, he said, he, he said uh, he was in Lancaster, excuse me for the terrible accident, he said, you want them pigeons to fly off? I said, well, that was the idea, but let's forget it, it's hopeless. So he said, do it one more time, I'll make them fly off for you. I said, well, yeah. he said, I, 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 I don't think so, we're short of time. He said, but he said, no, it's up to you. I said, well, the camera's still in position. Okay, quickly, quickly. So I said, action. Well, he took his flat cap off and he flung it into the air as high as he could. And all the pigeons went, <laughs> and they all flew off. It was perfect. And uh, I thought, How do you, of course, they, the pigeons must have thought it was some hawk or bird of prey, you know. And uh, I mean, it was brilliant. It was just fine. Brought him a drink afterwards. Thank you very much. So, um, you know, always, always listen to an old timer who knows who's seen it done before, you know. Absolutely. Oh, that's brilliant. But yeah, that's that's perfect. That's given us a good flavour of your career and your book and yourself <laughs> as well. So many thanks for taking the time to have a chat with us today. Oh, pleasure. Anytime. It was uh, nice talking to you. Thank you very much. And we would, of course, encourage everybody to buy a copy and hopefully you'll be doing a few signings as well at some point. Yes, I'm very happy. Um, uh, you know, whenever I'm asked, I, I do. I, it, we, we had a, a launch last Saturday, um, and that was great. A lot of, a lot of people turned up, and uh, it was great. Sylvester was there, and Sophie, and uh, Simon Williams, who was in the Remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah. Uh, and uh, no, it was, and K9 turned up, and all that. it was great. Yeah. You know, John, who I was at Rada with, he turned up. So it was a, a good day, you know? and I'm very happy to come and do any signing anybody wants. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much again. Massive thanks to Andrew. Really great to chat to him and share our appreciation of what he did with those eight episodes in 87 and 88. It's just a real shame that he never came back because I, I don't know if he was originally down to do Battlefield. You can imagine him doing that with all that energy and, and movement. But I think Michael Kerrigan, who also worked in Knights of God, did, I mean, he did a great job, but I always imagine what would it look like if Andrew had done it. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was anything to do with like the remembrance go over budget or anything like that. I mean, that's your remembrance still looks spectacular. I mean, I said earlier on, I couldn't believe really what I was watching. The scene in the shop, the full size shuttlecraft landed in the <laughs> madness. I remember just being like, what? What's going on? This is madness. Where have they found all this money? JT <laughs> <laughs> um, is necroelastic. Absolutely. No, it was. Um, yeah, it's a shame that he wasn't able to come back to season 26. Like, you know, you know, season 26 is Fenwick, directed by Nick Marlott, who'd obviously worked on, on season 23 and, you know, the light years in, in between stories and sort of styles and imagination. It just goes to show that, you know, when the production team are kind of fully engaged and getting on with, with each other and have a focus and a plan, they, they, they can they can create really good stuff. And I'm sure, you know, if Doctor had kept going, Andrew definitely probably would have come back, I'm sure. I'd hope so. I mean, to borrow a phrase, let's make magic. Absolutely. 
So there we go. But no, Dave, thank you for that. And uh, it's always great to celebrate some fantastic McCoy stories. Really enjoyed that. And I have a question for you. Um, you Go on then. Do you have any particular songs you'd like to play out today? I've got a couple (laughs) in mind which share the same title, but I don't know if you like them. I've no idea. I've only at this point recording this, and I've been awake for about half an hour. So um, I have not even I couldn't even think of a of a song title that that matches any of these. Um, so you'll have to you'll have to give me an option. Okay. Well, we've got two songs here. We've got the Black Eyed Peas and their song Action. No, we're not okay. Black Eyed. Definitely okay. not. I think Fergie'd gone by that point. Though, so oh, probably. actually, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know what we should use. We should use Shake Some Action by the Flaming Groovies. Oh, that's a good shout. That'll Let's do. go I'm for it. <laughs> right, listeners, Merry Christmas. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. And remember, visit www.tellos.co.uk if you want to order a copy of Andrew's book. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>